The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning. Happy Easter, everybody. Do me a favor, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up nice and high, wave it around. We will make sure that you get one. If you don't own a Bible, that's a gift to you, and we pray that through God's word, he will teach you more and more about our good, glorious, gracious, loving king. Um, This morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 24, and before we get started, I want to start out by just giving a great welcome to those who are with us today. As with every Easter service, we always have lots of guests or maybe lots of familiar faces we just haven't seen in a long time, and we just want to first say welcome to Heritage. We love the fact that that you've come and joined us this morning, and if there's anything that we can do to help you with from how do I find a bathroom to how do I get baptized, just do me a favor, find me, one of the other pastors, or anyone wearing a lanyard around their neck, and they will make sure that they get the answers to any of your questions, and uh, we would love to get a chance to meet some of you as we hang out afterwards. We've got a free barbecue going on right after this service. There's some bounce houses for the kids or the kid-ish people in the audience. And uh, just looking forward to really being able to hang out today and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Hey, we're going to be in the book of Luke. If you would turn there, chapter 24, and we're going to start out in verse 13. And before we do that, as often... We're going to open up in a word of prayer. So as you're turning there, I'm going to begin. Lord, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together this morning, Lord, to be able to worship, fellowship, make new friends, hang out with old ones. Lord, just for the privilege of celebrating and fellowshipping and having a joyous holiday together, Lord, is such a gift. But when we really think about it, Lord, we know that that gift came at an incredible price because the reason that we're here is because of the sacrifice of your son. Lord, as we consider, Lord, the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ and the death that he underwent on our behalf, Lord, we are humbled. But then, Lord, when we consider the resurrection and your power over death, we are in awe. So, Father, as we open up your word again this morning, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would move among this place. Words that I have to offer mean nothing. But if your spirit should awaken hearts, Lord, you can change lives. So I pray, God, that your word would set people free, awaken hope, convict sin, change hearts, lives, and minds this morning. And God, I pray for your grace even as I speak, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, O my King, my Rock, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Hey, I'm going to open up by just uh, reading through the narrative that we have here. It's kind of a longer story, um, and we're not going to necessarily, as we tend to do here at Heritage on a weekly basis, we're not going to break down every verse and kind of dissect it in the way we might normally do. We're going to look at this story from a narrative perspective, and I want to point out a few things. So let's just read through it together. I'm going to be starting in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. And this is a story that we tend to, at least in my experience, we've tended to sort of separate it from the resurrection of Christ. We have the Easter morning service, 
And then there's these other stories that happen sort of after the resurrection. But as you'll see right at the very beginning, this happened on that day, this day, over 2,000 years ago, a true event on the day of the resurrection of Christ. It says in verse 13, that very day, two of them, speaking of followers of Jesus, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it as the women had said, but that they didn't see. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe what the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening. The day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose at that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This story known through the church as the story of the road to Emmaus. It's a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus Christ to a couple of his followers as they were making their way from Jerusalem back to their village, Emmaus. It's only recounted in the book of Luke. None of the other gospels actually include this story. But, but more interestingly than that is to understand that Luke would choose this story means something specific because you see the author of the book of Luke is, well, Luke, hence the name. And Luke is a doctor, a physician, and a historian. And, and he tells us even in his writings that he's writing these things that we might know the truth about what happened. He's documenting the actual verifiable history of specific events. And so when Luke's writing through and telling the story of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and then the interactions after the fact, 
he actually only pulls three stories together about the post-resurrection events concerning Jesus Christ himself. And this is one of them. So Luke, he's a historian, he's a doctor, he's intentional, and he's not writing just randomly. There's purpose in the things that he's writing. He chooses this story in particular about these two people that happen to be making their way back home after the resurrection. Why? Why this story? What is it that Luke's trying to do through this story as opposed to all the other stories that he could have shown? Why would Luke choose a story like this? Well, first of all, he's choosing this story, and it sounds a little bit ridiculous, but it's true. He, he chooses this story because it actually happened. This is true. Un- unbeliever that might be with us, those of you that, that maybe are skeptical about these things, let me assure you, he writes these things because they're true. Now, we today, 2,000 years later, it's really easy to distance ourselves from these events and go, oh, that didn't happen. Oh, you're just following wives' tales that have been passed down from generation to generation. But, but you need to understand, there's, this is such a verifiable, true event that happened. And in the day of this writing, it wasn't like we are now. Oh, it's just, it's just rumors. We've heard about it, but uh, you guys are just wives' tales. In this day, Everyone knew, whether they believed and followed Jesus or not, everyone knew that this had happened. For example, in the book of Acts, Luke is writing about Paul. And Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who used to crucify Christians before he saw the risen Jesus, is arrested and he's brought before these Roman rulers to testify about all this stuff he's stirring up as he's spreading the gospel of Jesus to all these people And he's given this testimony and he's before some of the leaders and he says, we have the text here in Acts chapter 26, it says this, and he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind and your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Festus was the Roman governor at the time who's standing before and presiding over Paul's testimony. And Paul gives this whole story about his conversion and the resurrection of Jesus, and Festus goes, Paul, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. You've been studying so much, and you've been diving into the book so much that you've driven yourself mad with this high learning. You've gone too far, man. And what's Paul's reaction? Look what he says. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words for the king, and know this, King Herod Agrippa is there with them. And so he's talking to this governor. No, I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking the truth. And then he turns to the king off to the side. And he says, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. Imagine that. Paul's standing there before him. This guy's like, Paul, you're mad. You people down here, you you don't understand. You've driven yourself crazy with all this study. You're buying into stupid myths. You've driven yourself crazy. And Paul goes, no, I'm not. I'm telling you the truth. And he turns to the king and he says, he knows. He saw. This didn't happen in a vacuum. This didn't happen in some back room. And then we all came out and said, guess what? No, this happened in front of everyone. In fact, Paul goes on to tell the story later about how at one time Jesus appeared before over 500 people at one time. This was a real event that whether people wanted to believe that Jesus was the crucified or whether he was the Messiah, I should say, God himself or not, everyone knew that this had happened. And so first Luke's grabbing this event because it's true. This happened. We're not following Aesop's fables here. We're not reading some sort of book. This isn't a book club, amen? 
This is real, it's true. I urge you to understand that. And then the second thing is, is he chooses this story in particular because I think this story actually shows us and tells us what it's like for even us today to have an encounter with the risen king, Jesus himself. We didn't, we didn't have to be 2,000 years ago walking on a road between Jerusalem and Emmaus to come into contact and to encounter the risen king of kings. We can do this today, amen? And so he points out a couple of things. And the first thing I want you to notice, though, though today, the third day, Resurrection Sunday, I mean, we even treat it here as this joyous celebratory day. If you were here for our Good Friday service, Good Friday service has a totally different feel. It's somber. It's almost mournful as we understand the reality of what sin did to Jesus Christ on the cross and what he endured on our behalf. It's a very somber, heavy, mournful, even almost sad kind of day. But Easter Sunday, it's celebration, right? It's joy. It's, it's almost a party in a sense. But that's not the way it started for these guys. The text actually tells us in the beginning that they were downcast. Look at verse 17. Jesus says to them, what's this conversation you're holding with each other? And it says, and they stood still looking sad. The word there means discouraged, downcast, even depressed. These guys are bummed out. Like they're, they're devastated. It's not just like, oh well, but it's a, our world has crumbled. And they're walking back home just trying to grab, what do we, what do, we do now? What, what do we do now? What's going to happen here? Why were they so downcast? Well, beyond the obvious that their friend had been crucified, there's some, some things that we should understand that apply even to our very own lives in this that we can see in the actual text. The first thing is this. The reason these guys are so bummed out as they're walking back, the reason they're so discouraged is because in that moment, they are thinking about, and if you will, walking in the reality of a life without the resurrection of Jesus. They don't know it's happened, and they don't think it's going to happen, and they're envisioning what is life going to look like from here moving forward with Christ being dead, and they are discouraged because anyone who's thinking about things apart from the resurrection of Christ, that's going to be just the natural state. Let me, let me give you an example. In the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there's a really prominent atheist psychiatrist, very prominent, wrote a lot of books. He's very famous. His name was Rollo May. It's not the guy who the candy was named after, different dude. But Rollo May, very famous psychiatrist, he wrote a book called My Quest for Beauty. And it told a lot of the stories of how he had gone through life and traveled and studied and just the things he had learned and, and his quest for beauty and purpose and meaning in life, interestingly enough. And in it, he tells the story of how he was in Greece on an Easter morning one year, and he decided to go to a local Greek Orthodox church for their Easter morning service. Not because he was necessarily looking for truth about Jesus, but he's learning about the culture. This is what the people do. This is what the landscape looks like. And he wanted to kind of go take in this service that they were in. So as he was in the service, Easter morning, at a certain point towards the end of the service, the priest gets up and he says, the Lord is risen. And now let's see how many denominational background people we have. On an Easter morning, when someone says, he is risen, what do you respond with? He is risen indeed. Almost all of you. Very well done. We got a lot of good Lutherans and Baptists and Episcopalians in here. So that's what they do. Even back then, the Lord is risen, and the congregation responds, he is risen indeed. And Rollo May, atheist, 
He's participating because he, he wants to understand what the people do. He wants to learn these cultures. And so he's participating in it. And he said that he actually responded as well. He is risen indeed. And when he said that, and not just when he said he is risen, but when he said he is risen indeed, something washed over him, this reality, this understanding that he had never considered before. And he says this in his book. He says, suddenly I was seized by a moment of spiritual reality. What would it mean for our world if he indeed was risen? What if death really wasn't the end? And he said he was filled in that moment with awe and hope. Like what if? What if he really did rise again? And he's filled with awe and hope. But, but when you're walking in the other reality where you're going, oh, he, he's dead, it's over. There's none. I mean, consider it this way. This is so silly. If you're thinking, and again, if you're just going through life all haphazardly, like, oh, well, whatever happens, happens. I mean, God bless you. You're not going to worry about any of this stuff. But if you're thinking, and contrary to what some people believe, Christianity is a thinking faith. Amen? If you're thinking, consider what we do. It's silly. Our culture tells us, hey, your origin means nothing. You're from dust, you're, you're just sort of a uh, eventual evolution thing that just sort of happened. There's no real purpose in your birth, it just sort of happened. Your origin doesn't necessarily matter and your destiny doesn't really matter either because there's nothing on the other end of that. You're not going to heaven, there's no afterlife, there's no resurrection, so your origin doesn't matter, your destiny doesn't matter, but somehow in the middle we go, that's what really matters. We need to eradicate slavery. We need to eradicate racism. We need to eradicate oppression. Why? Because people are valuable. Why? If the origin doesn't matter and the destiny doesn't matter, then we need to at least have the guts to admit that everything in between doesn't matter either. But we're looking for something. No, people have worth, people have value, why? If they're an accident to begin with and they're gone forever in the end, there's nothing valuable in the end. But we have this weird thing that we try to do in this, but if we actually stop and think about that, this is a really happy Easter morning message, right? (laughs) If you think about that, if that's true, who cares? What's the point? We're just biding time till the end and hoping that the end doesn't happen today. But even in that, we know the end's coming eventually and then nothing. Everyone would be downcast if they're believing that. And that's what they're believing. Jesus says to them, hey, what is it you're talking about? What's going on? And they're like, do you not understand? Look, Jesus came and this is what happened. And all these events, we saw these miracles, we saw this stuff, but death came and death ended him. And so none of it matters anymore. Death came for Jesus, and death's gonna come for us. If the resurrection isn't true, nothing matters, nothing. And the second reason that they're downcast is a little more specific, because here they are making their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They're walking with Jesus even right then, and they have no idea. They're completely blinded to it. They don't understand who it is, and why is that? I mean, the scriptures tell us that he had been blinded from them, that there was a sense, a spiritual reality in which he was being withheld from them in that moment. But, but how is it that he could be so blinded? We even see other stories of people seeing him at first and not realizing who he is. Mary in the garden, for example. What would cause people to miss him? How do they not recognize the guy when he's right there? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is, and this, is gonna, this could sound offensive to you if you're kind of new to some of this, but it's true. Jesus is actually really ordinary. He's supernaturally ordinary. 
He's just an ordinary person. Now think of it this way. If you are making all this up, if Luke's lying, and Luke wants to write a story about the resurrection of this king, remember, he's already talked about things like walking on water, feeding thousands out of nothing, raising the dead. I mean, he's, he's covered all of this stuff, and now he's at the culmination of the story, and Jesus himself is gonna raise from the dead. If Luke's making this up, if you were making this up, how would you write the story? We'd write it differently. We would have fireworks and explosions and blazes of light and how, and that's what we would do. It'd be like a Hollywood movie. Even, you saw the video that we opened with. Even when we make videos like that in our culture, we want it to build this powerful crescendo and grab us. But that's not the way the story goes. He's just walking with some guys on the side of the road and they don't even realize they're with him. There's writings, for example, the the book of Peter, or the gospel of Peter, I should say, that was excluded from scripture because they they, as they studied it, discerned this is not the inspirational writings, but some of the things even there were exaggerations and made up and things like that, but even in that, in the gospel of Peter, they tell the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and this guy, when he wrote that, came up with all kinds of grand stuff. He tells about angels that came down in light and how a crowd gathered at the tomb and the stone exploded. And Jesus came walking out and beams of light are shooting out. This incredible Hollywood kind of story. That's the kind of thing that we're actually driven to. But Jesus is ordinary. There's something in that for you because some of you here are withholding giving your life to Jesus because you're waiting for something extravagant with fireworks and explosions. You're waiting for that kind of testimony that we hear sometimes about the person whose life was such a wreck and then something miraculous happened to shake them up and to show them, oh, Jesus is real. This is, this is who the Lord is and how their whole life changed after that. But here's what you need to understand. Some of you got invited here by a friend and that's Jesus. Like, like not your friend, but that's the call of Jesus through your friend saying, I'm here, I'm real. And sometimes we can hold off for so long trying to find this extraordinary moment and I'm begging you and urging you, listen, Jesus works through some of the most ordinary things in the world to do some of the most extraordinary things through our lives. Only about one in a hundred people have that sort of Hollywood level uh, uh, testimony. Most of us just became aware. In fact, there's a ton of people in this church. I'm like, when did you get saved? And they're like, I don't even for sure know. I just know that I believe. It just happened. And so, so maybe you're in a place right now where a friend invited you to church or a situation is pushing you to Jesus or a trial, a difficulty, a tragedy is pushing you to a place where you're just like, I don't know what else to do. Here's what you need to know. That is the grace of God calling you to him through what seems like ordinary circumstances. Don't wait for the explosions. Answer the call. Maybe that's a word for you even this morning. It's not a bright, sunny, amazing day. It's spring break, it's gloomy, it's rainy, and the duck's lost. (laughs) They beat Duke though, so praise God, right? But the duck's lost. But, But all of your life has somehow brought you to this point Maybe God's calling you through the ordinary. So not only do they maybe miss out on him because he's so ordinary, but they miss out on him, and this is where you need to lean in, people. They miss out on him because they're looking for the wrong thing. They were expecting the wrong thing. They don't understand how badly they need to be redeemed. Hear me in this. 
They have no idea how badly they need to be redeemed. I mean, look closely at what it is they actually say here. In verse 20, it says, they're telling the story to Jesus. They're like, what do you mean what's going on? Don't you know? This is all this stuff that happened. In verse 20, and our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem who? Israel. Now think for just a second. Right now, we, this is part of our cultural challenge sometimes. When I talk about redeem, we instantly go into like religious language to spiritual language. That's what that means. Not the case then. When you're talking about redeem, you're talking about slavery. And what they're saying is, is we thought he was going to be the one that was finally going to deliver us from the slavery and the oppression that we're experiencing under Rome. That's what we wanted. They were looking for this sort of national deliverance. There's no real personal element to this. And I want you to think about something for just a second. Because the Bible never really pushes so much, or certainly not primarily, on the idea of some sort of national deliverance. But, but over and over about slavery, not from Rome, not from oppressive governments, but from the slavery of our hearts. And most of us, just like these guys, have no idea how enslaved we really are. They're looking for this national thing to happen. That's not why Christ came. Let me give you an example. Consider, this is an easy one just for a picture. Think of addictions. Uh, Alcohol addiction, drug addiction, whatever the case may be. It's slavery in and its core. Because most people, when they get into that, they're looking for something to fill a void. There's something missing in their life. And so they turn to alcohol, they turn to drugs, they're looking for a high, something either to to cope with the hurt they're dealing with or to mask the hole, just something that they can feel some sense of euphoria and joy in their life, so they start turning to that. But as you know, something happens not long after they begin down that road, it's called a tolerance effect. And so the thing that brought such these feelings of joy and euphoria, the high, it's not the same anymore, so now they need to go a little bit further, a little bit deeper. They need more of it, or they move from one drug to a more intense drug, or whatever the case may be. And this is what ends up happening. The thing that you went for, for escape and release, becomes the thing that now owns you. And you start this spiral that just bottoms out terribly because you need more and more of it, but now you're a slave to it, so you're constantly giving all your money towards it, all your focus towards it, all your thoughts is, I can't wait till I get off work so I can go do this. And the next thing you know, you're doing it at work because you can't say no to the thing. And it just spirals and spirals and spirals. And this thing you thought would deliver you now has you around the neck. That's slavery. And you go, I know, man, addiction's bad. It's terrible, but it happens through everything. It can happen through family. It can happen in relationships. Oh, Prince Charming, I'm just gonna marry that one guy and he's gonna deliver me. Ladies, not only am I a guy, but I've had to counsel and spend time with a lot of guys. And I'm telling you right now, there ain't a guy on earth gonna deliver you. They're losers, all of them, (laughs) us included, and you don't even know. I mean, the dating, you're like, no, he's Mr. Perfect, we're dating. Oh, you just wait. Just wait. Once we feel like we've got you and we don't have to impress you anymore, that's when the truth comes out. Burping, belching, all the other stuff, it's terrible. But we look to these relationships as the thing that's going to save us, and it kicks off spirals. It can happen with hobbies. Oh, my work is so stressful. All I want to do is go fly fishing on Saturday. I'm just so excited to go fishing. I just need that release. And so you go And you start out, you just learn, and you catch that one fish that's like that big, and you think you're king of the world. I finally caught a fish on fly rod, woo! 
but then you get better at it and the fish get a little bigger and suddenly these don't do it anymore. You gotta go after bigger fish and you gotta go to different rivers and you gotta go to different places. Now you're spending all your money on a more expensive rod and another, another I'm confessing a little bit right now in front of all of you, but... <laughs> But look, it goes and goes, and here's what's happened so many times, even with a hobby like that, it can control you. It can take all of your money, it can take your time away from your family, all your money, time, attention, thoughts, everything, go into a stupid hobby because you're looking for deliverance, and now it controls your life. And everyone who goes through those spirals can tell you, it's not joyful anymore, it's stressful. I'm chasing something. I'm chasing heaven and now I started out like I'm chasing this joy and now I feel like I'm just running from the fears. It happens with relationships, sexual relationships, money, anything and it grabs you around the neck and we look at it as, oh, we're just living our life and we don't realize, no, the reality is you're a slave. To us, slavery just means, well, that's what they did back before the Civil War. But it's not true. Harriet Tubman herself, Underground Railroad, is quoted as, I don't know if it's true or not, but the quote's gold. She's quoted as saying, I freed a thousand slaves and I would have freed a thousand more if only they had realized that they were slaves. And here's these men, they're thinking, I thought Jesus was the one that's gonna come into my problem and help me through my problem. We've got this problem with Rome and government and he was gonna work us through this and that's what I thought was gonna happen. Listen, listen, listen. If all you want out of Jesus is some sort of chicken soup for the soul to help you walk through difficulties in life, that's all you'll get. But you wanna know why the addict, for example, or the person with that gnarly testimony seems to have a whole lot more joy in their conversion than everyone else? You wanna know why? Because they know they were slaves. They understand. They're like, no, 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 no. Jesus didn't just come to be a therapist to help me think good as I went through a difficult situation. I was ruined and Jesus set me free. So I will give anything in my life to him. If I'm gonna be slave to anything, I'm gonna be the slave to the God who has graciously given his life for me and set me free. That's who I'll follow. That's why those people have such powerful testimonies because they get it, they were slaves. If you're just like, hey, Lord, I'm a sufferer and, and I need your help through suffering, that's totally different than, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need to be set free and reborn. These guys, they're not understanding that what Jesus came to do. Oh, he's just gonna help us through this situation. He's gonna help us improve our lives and that's not the reality of it. He didn't come to improve their lives. He came to remake their lives that they might be set free from that which holds them, that they wouldn't live for anything else on earth, that they would live for him and for all eternity. He came to set the slaves free. And we are all slaves to sin. So here they are, they're walking, they don't understand any of these things, but eventually they get it, right? I mean, their eyes open and they finally realize it. How does that happen? It's kind of interesting that Jesus never once actually stops and goes, guys, hold on, look, pull the hood back, it's me, ta-da. Never does that. He's never like, guys, you don't know who I am, do you? This is uncomfortable, but hey, I'm Jesus. Look, here's the, here's the holes, here's the scars. He doesn't do any of that. What does he do? He just opens the scriptures to them. He opens the scriptures to them. Why? Well, first of all, I think because Luke is showing you that you didn't have to be on a dusty road in Emmaus on that Sunday that many years ago to encounter Christ. We have the ability to do it right here today, to open the word. Notice what they said. Didn't our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures? 
As we were learning these things, there was something in us burning. We just knew that we're having an encounter with the Lord. And some of you feel that same way today. You're in in here right now as I say these things and there's a burn going on inside you. And you're trying to discern, is that pizza or Jesus? (laughs) These things happened. You know your need and Christ is calling you to him. But, but he's not just saying just open up the scriptures. There's something specific about the way he opened the scriptures that is really important for us to understand. It says here that he opened the scriptures to show them how everything in it was about who? About him. Like there's a, there's a way to open this book and make it a therapeutic manual, a, a moral fables to help us make our lives better. To say, Man, I'm, I'm at an end and I need some answers, so maybe the Bible will give me some advice for this particular situation. That's the wrong way to open the book. And, and we do this so easily. Uh, the, the famous example that I always go to, and longtime heritage people here can take a nap for about three minutes, but um, the, long, the, the famous story, David and Goliath. We all know that story, right? I mean, I can't imagine too many Americans that don't know this story. We're even doing TV series now about David and Saul and all this. But just in case, the story of David and Goliath is about the fact that the Israelite army and the enemies, the Palestinian army, are in this standoff. And the Palestinian army sends this one guy out named Goliath, and he's bigger than everyone by a mile. And he stands out there, you send me your champion, send me your best warrior and we will fight and the winner wins. If I, def- if I win, our army is victorious. If you win, then we'll, we'll surrender and we're out of here. But the Israelite army is absolutely paralyzed. It's not even that they're sending people out and losing. They just know right away we have no shot. No one wants to go. And interestingly enough, here's the Philistines' biggest guy, Goliath, out there. Who's the biggest guy in Israel? He's the king, Saul. The Bible tells us he's head and shoulders above everyone, and he's just sitting on his throne going, I don't know what to do. And this little bitty guy, David, comes in. Smallest guy, the Bible makes it really clear. Smallest in his family. So small, they overlooked him in terms of the army. They're like, no, no, just go take care of the sheep. You can probably handle those. Smallest guy comes in and is like, what are you guys doing? He's mocking the Lord and the Lord's people and he takes this sling and five stones but he only needed one. Goes out there before Goliath, this huge guy, stone, fall, dead, victory. And so we take a story like that and we can make it into sort of an Aesop's fable that goes, see, see, you feel small and insignificant but you can slay dragons too. The bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? And we can get fired up about that stuff. Yeah, I mean, just, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. But that's not the story. I mean, mean, the story actually shows us that salvation doesn't come through the grant, it comes through the weak. And here comes David. And what's the story teaching us? Through the victory of one comes celebration for all. As David is glorified, Israel is glorified. It's not, man, I can do it, it's he did it. And because of the victory of David, who is a picture of Jesus for us, we can celebrate. And so the reality is that when we come to the scriptures, if you come through that vein, not I want to make my life better. I want help through my enslavement. I want help through my situations. You're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. But when you come to the scriptures and you go, and this is Jesus, this is the Messiah, this is what he did, you will find that your heart will ignite because it's true and because he's real. 
And because the spirit of God wants to ignite in you an understanding not only of your enslavement to sin and things on this world, but to the reality of Jesus Christ that he came to deliver you. And that's why we're here today. Visitor, unbeliever especially, we are here today to declare to you the goodness of Jesus Christ. That every single one of us are looking for something and always have been. And that we are slaves to sin because we have rebelled against God. We try to find our own way. We try to make our own judgments. We say, we know what's better for us. I don't need some guy on, up on stage to tell me what to do. I don't need Easter. I don't need this old book you guys keep following around forever. I'll figure things out on my own. I would say, how's that going for you? We've been there. We say that humbly. We've been there. But this is what we know. That Jesus Christ, that God himself is a merciful, loving God that understands our enslavement, understands our predicament. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus became flesh. He walked here among us and he lived the perfect life of obedience to God that we never could, went to the cross and carried the punishment for our sin and rebellion and enslavement in a way we never could. But that not only did he die for our sin, absorbing punishment on our behalf, but that he rose again from the grave, triumphing over sin and death, defeating Satan once and for all. And the Bible now tells us that he has ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father and he's our advocate now. And he says, listen, Bill, Jim, Susan, whatever your name is, he says, listen, trust me. Stop looking in relationships for your hope. It's not going to work. Stop looking to drugs, sex, money, etc., etc., for your hope. There's nothing there but a spiral of enslavement. But listen, Jesus is real. He died for your sins. He rose from the grave on the third day to set you free from that. And there's hearts right now that even as you hear that, you burn. You feel that? What you're about to see in just a minute, as Sam comes up, you can come on up, Sam, we're gonna be getting started here in just a second, is we're gonna be coming to the waters of baptism. Here, here's what's happening. As people have made their declaration, put their faith in Christ, I believe in Jesus, I believe what he did, I believe that he did this for me. These people are coming to the baptismal. It's not some sort of uh, supernatural weirdness. It is an obedient act. God says that we are to put our faith in him and that the most, then the next thing in obedience to Jesus is we're to be baptized. It's a, it's a picture, it's a symbol of being laid in the tomb the same way Jesus was, but then rose from the dead. And, and the idea is, and Jesus even puts it this way, you are born again. There is a new life available for you. You don't have to be enslaved to all this stuff anymore. You can be set free, he says. And you go, okay, I'll, I'll do that, but I'll just do that on my own. Or I'll just kind of pray this little thing. I don't need to do any of that. My friend, you are still enslaved. My plea, come. Come pray with the elders. Come meet Jesus. Come turn your life over to him once and for all. Stop holding on to pride that you know what's best. All of these things, whatever it is that you're holding to, whatever it is that has a hold on you, it will spiral you out. But instead, you need to know the reality is that today Jesus Christ lives. He lives. He's coming again. And he desperately loves you. Not people in general, you. And he has orchestrated your life to this moment, this day, and he's saying, come on. Will you come? Will you respond to the goodness of God? 
or you put it off once again, man, don't be a slave anymore. Jesus has saved millions of people from slavery. Don't let anyone in this place continue in slavery because they don't realize that they're slaves. God, I just pray even right now that your spirit would move in this place. Lord, right now there are people whose hearts are burning even now. Father, I pray that they would see that this is you. I pray, God, you would empower them by your grace to respond to your gospel, that you would change lives, set prisoners free, end addiction, end sin, end condemnation, and bring new life, Lord, to your people this morning. At this time, we're inviting you to come forward, to receive Jesus, to come to the waters of baptism. If you're a, a child under the age of 12, we do ask that you would just meet with one of our pastors before then. It's not about putting boundaries in front of or making it hard for people to get baptized. Just the reality is that most of the people that I baptize almost always tell me, I got baptized as a kid, but I didn't understand it then. But this is what I wanna encourage you. Some of you, by the way, are believers in Jesus and you've been a believer for a long time and you've never been baptized since you believe because you're afraid what people will think. Oh, he just got saved? He's been here forever, he just got saved. Well, that's embarrassing, I can't do that. You too are enslaved. Jesus Christ lives so that today, this very day, his church might be free. Amen? Come and receive him. Let's sing.